Welcome to NTD Evening News. Our top story tonight, Fannie Willis questioned about her alleged affair with another prosecutor. What did Trump attorneys ask the Georgia District Attorney and the lead prosecutor? We'll talk with our legal correspondent Arlene Richards about some of the highlights. A judge dismisses Trump's motion to throw out his criminal case in New York. Trump and his legal team are calling it election interference. David Lamb in New York. More details coming out about the shooting at the Kansas City Chiefs Parade. What police know about the conditions that led to the shooting and who are the victims. The Israeli military said they believed hostages were being held at a certain hospital in the Gaza Strip. A major concern is that thousands of displaced people have reportedly been residing there. Jason Perry reports. Is Russia targeting U.S. satellites in outer space? The White House now confirming the nature of the national security threat flagged by the House Intel Committee chair. What we know about the potential disruptions here on Earth. Iris Tao from the White House. This is NTD Evening News. Live from our NTD Global Headquarters in New York City. Here is Tiffany Meyer. Good evening and thank you for joining us tonight. Former President Trump's attorneys are questioning two prosecutors in the Georgia RICO case. We turn now to our legal correspondent Arlene Richards for some of the highlights. Arlene, can you briefly explain why the alleged affair between Special Prosecutor Nathan Wade and District Attorney Fonnie Willis is relevant in this case? Well, let me just start by how this came about. So one of the uh, defendants, one of the co-defendants, Michael Roman, his attorney filed a motion to, dis a motion to disqualify these two attorneys, uh, Fonnie Willis and Nathan Wade. And in that motion, they said that the two of them were in a romantic relationship. Now that alone might not be a big deal, but they also said that the two of them were financially benefiting from this case. And that's important here at, for today's hearing. Now, what they're saying is that Fonnie Willis and Nathan Wade got into a relationship back in 2019, and that at the time that she hired him uh, for this case, he was her boyfriend. So she's hired her boyfriend to be involved in this huge case that's going to require hours and hours and hours of time to investigate as well as prosecute. And in addition to that, she's paying him more money than she's paying the other prosecutors who are also involved in this case. So he's making more money, he's billing a lot more hours, and she, he's her boyfriend. So this, this hearing today is to, to pin down you know, what kind of money was being spent? They're saying that he spent a lot of money on lavish vacations. They went on lavish vacations. So this is where she's benefiting, right? They went on these lavish vacations. So they're trying to pin down where the money came from, how it was spent, how she benefited, how he benefited. And, and today, both of them uh, have given some interesting testimony. On that note, D.A. Willis has just been testifying this afternoon, and she was asked about a lot of details about her relationship with Wade. Can you tell us more about that? It seems it got pretty heated. Yeah, I mean, let me just tell you how it got, how she came into the courtroom, just to set the stage for, for how this, the mood was. So Nathan Wade had completed his testimony, and he left the courtroom. So the attorneys are discussing or arguing, I guess, whether or not Fannie Wade should even come in and testify in the first place because her attorneys were trying to block it and say, no, she shouldn't have to testify. So they were in the middle of arguing this out when Fannie Willis comes walking in. 
and she stands there with her hand on her hip. She takes a piece of paper, she throws it on the council table, and she says, I'll do it. Um, and so they're still arguing, like the one attorney is still talking, and she just says, I'll do it, I'll do it. I'd be glad to do it. I'd be glad to testify, I want to. So it stops a little short. She goes up to the uh, stand and, and she gets sworn in and, and she tells the judge and everybody in the room, this is all lies. I wanna talk about this. I wanna have a conversation with you. And she's directing it at the attorney who filed the motion in the first place, Ashley Merchant is her name. So they begin, and so of course the questioning is centering around when did this relationship start in terms of a romantic relationship and how was money spent? And one of the things that they've been trying to establish, her and Mr. Wade, is that they shared in the expenses, that he didn't pay for everything. He may initially have paid for it, but then she would reimburse him. And one of the things they're saying is, in terms of how she reimbursed him is that she gave him cash. So they're trying to find out, well, where is all this cash coming from? Where you, you don't have any records about it? You know, they're asking her for, for records, like receipts or, or bank statements or anything like that. And they both keep saying, no, there's no records, no receipts. I just pay cash. So her testimony was, I have a, a, a safe, safety deposit box in my home. My father raised me that way, that a woman should always have money on hand. And she says, I keep anywhere from $5,000 to $15,000 in my safety deposit box. So I pay everything with cash. So here's, here's a clip that's coming up now about one of these exchanges between her and the attorney about one of the trips that they went on. So your office objected to us getting um, Delta records for flights that you may have taken with no, Mr. Wade. I mean, I and, well, no, 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 look, I object to you getting records. You've been intrusive into people's personal lives. You're confused. You think I'm on trial. These people are on trial for trying to steal an election in 2020. I'm not on trial, no matter how hard you try to put me on trial. So my question was, do you have any problem? I object to getting any personal records of mine. Well, now, Special Prosecutor Nathan Wade himself also testified today. What aspects of his relationship with D.A. Willis did the lawyers focus on? So, again, it's talking about the same thing. When did the relationship begin and what was, what was the uh, financial situation between them? You know, how, did, how was the money spent? And one of the things that, that they've said in their papers is that he made around $700,000 uh, on this case. And his uh, ex-wife, who he was in a divorce proceeding with, she had said in her uh, divorce proceeding that he had $700,000 and he wasn't sharing it with her. And this is kind of how this kind of came about, that they found out uh, he was making this kind of money. So they tried to pin him down on when the relationship started, because this goes toward, you know, was she trying to help her boyfriend make this money? Or was it that, you know, she sincerely thought he was the best man for the job? And there's been questions about his experience and how much experience he has as a prosecutor. And what they're saying in their papers is that he has the least experience of all the prosecutors that are actually working on this case, and that he hasn't ever prosecuted a case of this magnitude before. Now, the judge wouldn't allow that to come in. He wouldn't allow questions to be asked about that. But that's an interesting point to make. So why did she pick him? And so he, he maintains that their relationship started in 2022, as she does as well, and that they were just friends in 2019. And then in 2020, uh, they were colleagues, you know, and so that they would go to lunch once in a while together, but that the actual romantic part of the relationship didn't start until 2022. 
And, and then he, he's also trying to say that um, the money that I received wasn't just for me because I had a law firm and I had two other partners. So the money came in, but then I had to divide it up between the three of us. And then my one third of it, I had to take expenses out of it. And then he says, by the end of that, I only had about $9,000. So this is his testimony about the income that he was receiving. So let's take a look at the clip of where he talks about the relationship starting in 2022. When did your romantic relationship with Ms. Willis begin? 2022. When? In 2022. Early 2022. So you were appointed in November of 2021? Yes, ma'am. And your relationship started early. What's early? January? February? Around March. So all of the vacations that she took, she paid you cash for? Yes, ma'am. And you purchased all of these vacations on your business credit card, correct? Yes, ma'am. Well, Arlene, thank you so much for those updates. All right. Former President Trump's New York criminal trial is set to begin March 25th. Trump is accused of falsifying business records related to funds that were previously sent to two women who claimed they had affairs with Trump. NTD's David Lamb has the details. Here in New York City, the judge has denied the motion to dismiss Trump's case in the alleged hush money issue. Now, let's take a look at what happened. New York Supreme Court Justice Juan Merchan said on Thursday that the alleged hush money trial would proceed next month with jury selection. Former President Trump's attorneys blasted the decision, saying that Trump will have to stand trial while he's attempting to wrap up his Republican presidential nomination. This is all from the DOJ. This all comes out of Washington. It says you take a look at the legal documents and the legal scholars writing about this. They say there's no crime. This is no crime. But outside, right outside that courthouse, this courthouse, people are being murdered. So it's a very unfair situation. They want to keep me nice and busy so I can't campaign so hard. But maybe we won't have to campaign so hard because the other side is incompetent. The other side's done a horrible job running this country. The expected six-week trial comes after Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg brought his 34-count indictment accusing the former president of falsifying business records. But as far as this is concerned, it's election interference by Biden because it's the only way he can think to get elected because he's accomplished nothing. Trump's former attorney admitted to arranging payments to adult actress Stormy Daniels and former model Karen McDougal, both of whom alleged they had affairs with Trump. But Trump has denied the affairs and any wrongdoing. The indictment, he said, was political persecution, while the repayments to his attorney were legitimate legal expenses. Amid the allegations that Trump is facing, he showed optimism, saying that he won't let it get to him and that he will campaign during the nighttime and go to court during the day. Reporting in New York City, David Lamb, NTD News. Police are releasing more information about the shooting at the Super Bowl parade in Kansas City, Missouri on Wednesday. Preliminary investigative findings have shown there was no nexus to terrorism or homegrown violent extremism. This appeared to be a dispute between several people that ended in gunfire. Shooting erupted by the end of the Kansas City Chiefs parade near Union Station yesterday afternoon. A 43-year-old mother of two was killed and 22 others were injured. 
The injured range in age from 8 to 47. Half are under the age of 16 and at least eight are children. Authorities detained three suspects, including two juveniles. The shooting is still under investigation and police haven't pressed any charges. The police chief said one million people likely attended the parade. The Kansas City Police Department had roughly 800 officers around the area when the shooting broke out. Israel Defense Forces said they had intelligence that hostages were being held at a hospital in the Gaza Strip. This comes as the Israeli military also reported having planes flying over Lebanon and ready to strike. NTD's Jason Perry has the latest on the war. A chaotic scene as smoke filled the hallways of Al Nasser Hospital in the southern Gaza Strip. On Thursday, Israel Defense Forces raided Gaza's largest functioning hospital. The IDF spokesperson explained. We have credible intelligence from a number of sources, including from released hostages, indicating that Hamas held hostages at the Nasser Hospital in Khan Yunus and that there may be bodies of all hostages in the Nasser Hospital facility. He also said that they believed Hamas terrorists were operating there. And the day before, on Wednesday, Israel Defense Forces ordered thousands of displaced people to evacuate the hospital, but some were allowed to stay. The IDF said that a key objective in the operation was to ensure that the hospital continues to treat patients. A key objective, as defined by our military mission, is to ensure that the NASA hospital continues its important functions of treating Gazan patients. We coordinated the transfer of medical supplies and equipment to the NASA hospital. We sent oxygen tanks and fuel for electricity at the request of the hospital to ensure its essential functions continue uninterrupted. The Israeli military interrogated a Hamas terrorist who was one of the several suspects detained during the operation. The detainee said there were about 50 Hamas terrorists who operated at the hospital. And he also thought around 10 hostages were being held captive at the hospital, though the IDF did not immediately report rescuing any hostages during the raid. Also on Thursday, Israel Defense Forces reported striking several Hezbollah targets in Lebanon. And this building here in southern Lebanon was reportedly hit by an Israeli airstrike. Residents surveyed the damage. Israel's defense minister said they have no interest in war, but they must prepare. The planes that are flying in Lebanon's sky as we speak have targets, and they know how to attack them, and they know how to change their attack from one place to the other. We can do copy-paste from Gaza to Beirut. He also said that Israel wants to make an agreement that will allow the displaced Israelis to return to their homes in the north with appropriate security. On the other hand, the leader of Hezbollah in Lebanon said they will only stop firing rockets into Israel when Israel stops its war in the Gaza Strip. Jason Perry, NTD News. The White House confirming that the national security threat officials are warning about is related to an anti-satellite weapon that Russia is pursuing. But the administration would not disclose what exactly the weapon could do or how the U.S. plans to respond. NTD's White House correspondent Iris Tao has more. 
So amid a new wave of speculation after Republican House Intelligence Committee Chair Mike Turner warned about what he called a national security threat, the White House has now finally confirmed that it's been monitoring what it called an anti-satellite capability being developed by Russia. The White House says it's not going to pose any immediate threat to people here on Earth, but it does call that weapon troubling. Watch. We are not talking about a weapon that can be used to attack human beings or cause physical destruction here on Earth. It could affect services here on Earth. There's no question about that. That's why we are taking this so seriously. Satellites, the White House points out, that contribute to not just communications, but also command and control, as well as transportation and finance here on Earth. And while the White House would not confirm or deny reports that this weapon is nuclear capable, it does say that it's space-based and that it violates an international treaty that bans in space the use of nuclear weapons or other weapons of mass destruction. Meanwhile, the White House also would not disclose how exactly the U.S. might respond. Watch. And we are examining what the, the, the best next steps are and what our options might be. I want to re reiterate, it is not an active capability and it has not yet been deployed. And the White House says it's been aware of Russia's pursuit of such capabilities for many, many months, if not a few years. But it says it's not until just the recent weeks that it became more clear about how exactly that Russia is pursuing them. Meanwhile, the Kremlin on Thursday dismissed a warning by the U.S. saying it's malicious fabrication, adding that it's a trick by the White House to try to convince more lawmakers to approve more Ukraine funding to counter Russia. The White House says that's nonsense, adding that that is in the process of reaching out to Russia to talk more about its anti-satellite capabilities. Back to you. More debt relief could be on the way for student loan recipients. The Biden administration is looking to propose another round of forgiveness to Americans experiencing financial hardship. Under a new plan outlined by the Education Department, multiple factors such as household income, age, disability and other high cost burdens for essential expenses will be considered. Supporters say this new proposal could benefit tens of millions of people. But it remains to be seen whether the debt relief will come through as the rulemaking process involved could take months to finalize. Coming up, two court hearings today related to former President Trump's legal cases. Our guest says a lot is at stake politically. We bring you his analysis. The House begins its holiday recess without consensus on the reauthorization of a surveillance program, nor a foreign aid package for Ukraine, Israel and Taiwan. And in the South Carolina primary, how will Nikki Haley fare against Donald Trump in her home state? Dave Martin joins us to discuss when we come back. Welcome back. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Joining us now to dive into the two court hearings related to former President Trump today, we have Bob Barr. He is an attorney and a former congressman who served as impeachment manager during President Bill Clinton's impeachment. Bob Barr, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you back on the show. It's always a pleasure. Now, Trump has two dueling court cases today, one in New York and in Georgia. Now, to begin, what's at stake in these cases for Trump? Well, it's, it's 
I mean, certainly there's a lot politically at stake. Uh, we know that uh, because of the timing of these various cases, uh, this being an election year. Uh, the New York case, uh, of course, is a criminal case uh, brought by uh, Alvin Bragg uh, going back to 2016. So the facts of the case are at least uh, eight years old, which raises questions about why you know, he's doing this. So what the judge in that case uh, has done is to schedule the case uh, and affirm that it is scheduled uh, for later in March, March 25th, I believe. In Georgia, uh, which is uh, a case brought by the sitting district attorney, Fonnie Willis, uh, in Fulton County, Georgia, uh, Mr. Trump is one of uh, a number of defendants in that case having to do with the so-called uh, uh, fake electors and efforts to undermine the 2020 election. So that case is uh, going on four years old now. And what's at stake currently in that case is the credibility of the district attorney, Fonnie Willis, and the special prosecutor that she hired to assist uh, with the case, Nathan Wade, uh, with whom uh, she and Mr. Wade uh, were engaged in a romantic relationship, and more specifically, whether or not the way that relationship developed and whether or not uh, statements were made under oath by Mr. Wade, for example, uh, that were inaccurate, and whether or not, as a result of all of that going on in that case and the personal relationship, whether or not uh, Ms. Willis should be removed from prosecuting the case because there would be a conflict of interest, for example. Now, in terms of the Georgia case, besides the motion to disqualify Fonnie Willis, Trump and his co-defendants are also seeking to get, get the case dismissed. Now, how likely is that? It's a very interesting question because this judge, the Fulton County judge who has that case, uh, seems to be paying very close attention to the real underlying facts and charges in the case, in addition to all of these circumstances that we're now seeing unfold down there with the personal relationship that existed between Mr. Wade and uh, Ms. Willis. Uh, I would not be surprised uh, if the judge uh, finds that because of the distractions and the facts and possible misstatements by either Mr. Wade and or Ms. Willis, that uh, the case will have to proceed with somebody else prosecuting it. Uh, that could be done, but it would almost certainly mean that that case is going nowhere anytime soon. It will just sort of be left hanging out there. And Bob, you mentioned at the outset that these cases cost a lot to Trump politically. Now, on that note, Bloomberg is reporting that Trump is set to run out of legal funds in about the summer, about July this year. He's already spent $51.2 million last year on legal fees. Now, July would be about the time when his campaign would be ramping up spending to go head to head with President Biden. How do you see these cases fitting in with his presidential campaign? It certainly is uh, unusual, shall, shall we say. Uh, before these cases were brought and before Mr. Trump uh, has emerged as the almost certain Republican nominee, 
many people were saying or speculating that uh, these cases would uh, undermine uh, his popularity among Republicans. That has not turned out to be the case. Uh, Mr. Trump has done a very impressive job of making his appearances at these cases and talking about these cases sort of the the the, the center uh, or focal point of his campaign, of his political campaign. So far from hurting his chances of having of becoming the Republican nominee, uh, all of this piling on of charges and cases against him seems to have uh, helped him, at least among uh, his supporters. Now, if Trump gets convicted in one of his four cases, especially one of the criminal cases, how do you see that impacting how voters turn out to vote? That's, very, again, very interesting, and we're, we're in certainly uncharted territory here. But I suspect that among Trump's supporters, that is, Republicans who support Mr. Trump, uh, it will make no difference. It may cause them to be even more uh, aggressive in uh, coming out to vote and making sure that they get their friends to vote. Uh, with regard to uh, other Republican voters, I've seen some polls that indicate that this might cause some Republican voters to not support Mr. Trump if he is, in fact, uh, you know, convicted of one or more charges. Uh, again, uncharted territory completely, but certainly it, uh, nothing that happens in a state court proceeding uh, can stop Mr. Trump from being elected president uh, in, in, in our system. Unprecedented times indeed. Bob Barr, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. And we'll hear another perspective on the cases in just a moment from the former chair of the D.C. Democratic Party, who also fundraised for Fannie Willis. Where does he see the case going and what does he make of Trump's appearance in court? Stay tuned for that later in the show. Republicans keep accusing the Biden administration of not doing enough to stop illegal immigration. A House committee today probing what critics call the government's catch-and-release border policy. A witness from the Center for Immigration Studies told lawmakers what they should do to put more pressure on the federal government. First, the House must work to deny funding to the Biden catch-and-release machine. Instead of $7 billion to FEMA, HHS, and ICE for hotels, meals, work permits, counselors, ankle bracelets, and asylum officers for released illegal migrants, Congress should direct more money to removing not only criminal aliens as a priority, but also prioritize removing those aliens who have failed in their immigration proceedings or failed to even show up for them. Jessica Vaughn is the Director of Policy Studies for the Center for Immigration Studies. She commented on the recent border funding bill, which failed to pass the Senate. Vaughn said that bill would have only made matters worse by codifying and expanding catch-and-release policies. Democrats at the hearing disagreed, saying the bill would have finally brought much-needed relief to the border. They blamed former President Trump's alleged influence over congressional Republicans, saying he's the reason the bill failed. If you'd like to hear more from Ms. Vaughn and her take on the ongoing immigration crisis, make sure to tune in to NTD's Capitol Report tomorrow at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. We'll sit down for an interview to get her insights into the situation at our southern border. The House of Representatives began its President's Day recess without reaching a consensus on a foreign aid package, nor on the reauthorization of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, otherwise known as FISA. 
And recess began despite alarms raised by Congressman Mike Turner, chairman of the House Intel Committee, regarding new revelations of foreign military capabilities. NTD's Luis Martinez has more from Congress. Political maneuvering or a serious national security threat. These are two of the most prominent reactions congressmen had today to calls from House Intelligence Committee Chairman Mike Turner to declassify information on alleged new military capabilities from U.S. adversaries. Democratic Congressman John Garamendi dismissed the alarm caused by Turner, the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee. There is a need for secrecy, finding the right balance for that. There's nothing new about space weapons. There's nothing new about that. Representative Matt Gates, the Republican from Florida, accused Congressman Turner of gaslighting the American public. I worry that the motivation to uh, draw so much attention to this is less about intelligence and national security and more about a politician who wants to send $60 billion to Ukraine and wants to reauthorize the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. Both the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act and the foreign aid package to Ukraine, Israel and Taiwan have hit a roadblock in the House. Kind of thread the needle on what's vital for the nation's security, but also um, how to protect um, our, our liberties. Um, and I would hope that we get that done. The House has yet to put to a vote the Senate foreign aid package approved this week and has no deadline on the matter. Congress has until the 19th of April to vote to reauthorize the powers of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. Reporting from Washington, D.C., Luis Eduardo Martinez, NTD News. We turn now to our data hub with NTD's Dave Martin about the upcoming GOP primary in South Carolina. Dave, what are you looking out for in South Carolina? Well, for anyone who hasn't been reading the tea leaves, things are looking very favorable for Trump in South Carolina right now. The polls really aren't giving Nikki Haley a break. We're talking significant margins. Meanwhile, some of the biggest names in the state, they've thrown their weight behind a different candidate. I'm sure you can guess who that is. Now, I'll get dig into all that soon, but here's what I'm looking out for. Haley still has a chance to outperform expectations like she did in New Hampshire. Can she pull that off? And what kind of voters are going to turn out for her? Well, Haley's been getting a lot of support and doing very well with moderates and undeclared voters. Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. She might have lost in New Hampshire, but she got a lot of those swing voters. And New Hampshire, you could argue, was an exaggerated example of this. Many, many undeclared voters there. Now, just take a look at this. New Hampshire primary exit polls. Nikki Haley here got 64% of the undeclareds who could vote for anyone compared to Trump, who got just 35. But Trump here, he got the Republican vote, 74% compared to 24% for Nikki Haley. So she might have gotten two-thirds of the undeclareds, but she only, she only got one-fourth of the Republican vote. If she's going to win, she's got to get way more Republic, Republican support. And another thing to keep in mind, undeclared voters had a lot of freedom in New Hampshire. I mean, they, they could vote for anyone. Now, South Carolina is going to make it a little bit more interesting. Their primary, it's completely open. And Haley has actually pointed to the opportunities she has, especially in those states with open primaries. Exactly. You know, an open primary means anyone, regardless of uh, party affiliation, can cast a ballot for any candidate. So Haley has the chance to draw in voters from a wide range of people, the undeclareds, even Democrat-leading voters. Now take a look at this. South Carolina Democratic primary turnout 2024 
only 4% showed up. That's very low. Look at this, four years ago, 16%, four times as many showed up. Uh, I think this is a, a big advantage for a Haley because anyone who didn't vote can now come in, and these are, could be Democrat-leaning people, can come in and vote for a GOP candidate. And what is Nikki Haley doing specifically to win over South Carolinians? Yeah, she's really been campaigning on two things, electability and her extensive resume in the state. You know, she's from South Carolina. She was a two-term governor there. She was a representative there. So she's got quite an extensive reputation in that state. So you'd think her home state would be behind her. Well, you'd be wrong, unfortunately. You know, um, tr top Republican officials in the state, we're talking about Senators Lindsey Graham, as well as Tim Scott, even the current governor, they've thrown their weight behind Trump. Now, as far as the polls are going, we're seeing big leads from Trump, anywhere from 25, even up to 40%. Now look at this. This is a Winthrop University February poll. South Carolina primary poll, Donald Trump, 65% of the votes, Nikki Haley, just 29%. So he's more than doubling her in this poll. So the odds against the odds are really against Haley here, but she's got some money coming in. Now her, her, uh, her campaign just announced in January, they raised $16.5 million. That is a record month for them. So this is something else I'm looking out for. Will this race determine whether that money you know, keeps coming in for her? Well, Dave Martin with the Data Hub, thank you so much. Thank you, Tiff. And coming up, former President Trump appearing in person for the New York hush money case. Our guest says court cases are also campaign stops for Trump. Hear his reaction to the two hearings today. Contacting an IRS agent is about to get a lot easier. And why does the agency need thousands of guns and millions of rounds of ammunition? Commissioner Danny Werfel explains at today's hearing. And an alleged two-decade cover-up. Victims of Jeffrey Epstein sue the FBI, accusing the agency of hiding its failure to investigate the disgraced financier and enabling his sex trafficking. We'll have details when we come back here on NTD News. Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, here are some of today's top headlines. Police say the shooting at the Kansas City Chiefs Parade appeared to stem from a dispute and was not connected to terrorism. Half the people shot were minors. Police arrested three suspects. The Israel Defense Forces raided Gaza's largest functioning hospital in the city of Khan Yunis. They said they had information that Hamas terrorists were hiding in the hospital and holding hostages there. The U.S. House went on recess today without reauthorizing the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act or approving the foreign aid package. This also came as the chairman of the House Intel Committee raised a national security threat. A Fulton County judge oversaw a hearing examining allegations of improper conduct by District Attorney Fonnie Willis. The hearing centered around Willis and her romantic relationship with her special prosecutor, Nathan Waite. A judge in New York denied former President Trump's motion to dismiss the hush money case. The judge set the start date for the criminal trial on March 25th. Joining us now to discuss Trump's two court hearings today, we have A. Scott Bolden. He's a former chair of the D.C. Democratic Party and an NTD News contributor. A. Scott Bolden, thank you so much for joining us. Good to have you back on the show. Thank you for having me.
Now, former President Trump is facing dueling court cases today. Now, he was physically in the New York courtroom afterwards saying, quote, so instead of being in South Carolina and other states campaigning, I'm stuck here. Now, CNN notes that Trump wasn't stuck in the courthouse. He didn't need to be here, there. He voluntarily showed up, adding that as for South Carolina, his next scheduled campaign appearance in the state is next week. Now, what do you make of Trump's physical presence in the New York courtroom? Well, that's the campaign stop for him. He raises money by going to court. His campaign is his criminal justice system or his charges, his criminal cases, and his criminal cases are his campaign. He doesn't really have a, other than a campaign organization. He does some rallies, and he's got a fundraising operation. But these court cases are part of his criminal defense and part of his campaign. And that's why uh, Nikki Haley and others can't make any ground. It's all earned media. And every time he appears in court and plays the victim role, even though he drives the narrative, every time he does that, he raises more money, becomes more popular with the Republican base. But it's a shitter high, because at some point in time, reality is going to smack him in the face. The criminal justice charges or the felony charge are going to be tried. Uh, he's either going to be acquitted or convicted. And if he gets convicted, right, it's a strong possibility or probability that he's going to go to jail. That's the reality facing him, regardless of whether he's running for president of the United States or not. On that note, a judge has set a March 25th trial date for Trump's hush money case. That was the New York one we saw this morning. Now, this would mark the first time a former president and a current presidential nominee would be tried in a criminal case. How significant is that? Well, it's pretty significant and uh, pretty, uh, pretty awesome stuff. The first time in our 200, over 200 years of this democracy, this experiment that has been the longest surviving and succeeding democracy in world history. Uh, but, but again, Donald Trump drives this narrative. Uh, this is a simple case. It's a paper case. Either he falsified the records or he didn't. And this case is going to take a couple weeks, maybe three weeks, because of picking the right jury. But uh, it's going to go forward. Now, today in the Georgia case and the motion to hear or disqualify uh, Fulton County DA Fannie Willis, Fannie Willis, lead prosecutor Nathan Wade faced questioning about his alleged relationship with her. I think the whole process is really unnecessary and going nowhere. I find Wade to be a very credible witness. The salacious details of the relationship, uh, the, pros the prosecutor and the defense tried to stay away from that, but you can't. And the reality is, for Fannie Willis or Fannie Willis, both of them, or at least one of them, Wade, could withdraw from the case without any political ramifications. And yet they're fighting to stay in the case because they don't believe they've done anything wrong. Uh, the cross-examination uh, is about trying to confirm whether they had a relationship dating back, I think, to 29, to before he was hired, or did it start after he was hired? That's going to be critical to the appearance of a conflict. Secondly, did Fawny Willis benefit and did Wade benefit as a result of that relationship? And did that, did that drive the prosecution of Donald Trump? The investigation started before all of this, well before 2019. And I just don't think that dog's going to hunt. It is just a huge sideshow. It's not going to help either one of them or the criminal justice system. Now, as for Fannie Willis, you have actually fundraised for her before. Now, if the judge disqualifies her, what does that mean for this case? 
Well, I think that means the whole team is going to have to withdraw. Uh, they will appoint a special prosecutor. They may reinvestigate it. But I don't think that's I don't think that's going to happen per se, because in order for it to be an actual conflict, there's got to be some uh, the, watch the money and drive the money and see where the money goes. I don't think there's enough credible evidence to support that or whether she got paid or this was a scheme so that Wade could get paid. Uh, there's a lot of evidence here. There's a lot of bad evidence here for those charged. And whether it's Fawny Willis or another special prosecutor, this case is going to go forward. Uh, I've raised money for Fawny Willis because I believe in saving this democracy. I think what she's doing and the other federal prosecutors are fighting for democracy and to preserve democracy. Hey, Scott Bolden, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. And tomorrow morning, beginning at 9 a.m. Eastern, NTD's Stephanie Cox and Chris Spears will continue our special live coverage as a Georgia misconduct hearing enters day two. District Attorney Fonnie Willis will continue her testimony. Will she be disqualified from the case? We'll have in-house analysis from NTD's own legal correspondent Arlene Richards and top legal minds breaking down what it all means. Tune in and stay informed on NTD News. Speaking with an IRS agent is going to become a lot easier. And why does the IRS need thousands of guns and millions of rounds of ammunition? These key points from Thursday's hearing with IRS Commissioner Danny Werfel and he's Virginia Gibson has more. I don't ever want to hear about someone waiting on the phone for an hour. That is heartbreaking. No more long wait times. Speaking with an IRS agent is about to get a lot easier. If your wait time is going to be longer than 15 minutes, we will introduce into the phone, hey, you can, we can schedule a callback option so you can hang up, no longer listen to elevator music, and we'll call you back. IRS Commissioner Danny Werfel told lawmakers Thursday the IRS is implementing a callback option. The option is expected to be available this tax filing season. Werfel says stories of long wait times have been a rallying cry for him. Another rallying cry is protecting his agents. Reportedly by spending $10 million on weaponry, such as rifles and tactical shotguns. Rep. Jody Arrington wants to know why they bought so much. I think the American people ought to know that. Most IRS employees are customer service reps. I like to say they're armed only with headsets. The only people in the IRS that would ever be armed are federal law enforcement officials who investigate crimes in the context of very dangerous scenarios. Werfel says these scenarios include organized crime, crime on the dark web, narcotics trafficking, human trafficking, terror financing, and money laundering. Guns may be needed to protect the security of IRS agents. But the security of your tax returns is in question. IRS employees, when they are working remotely from home, can access taxpayer information, right? Certain employees, depending on the need, yes. Nothing to prevent the employee's 19-year-old son walking behind the screen from taking a screenshot of whatever's on the screen, correct? That would be a violation of that employee's responsibility to protect uh, information. Werfel says IRS employees need to be able to work remotely, especially during severe weather events or other instances when the streets shut down. He says all IRS employees are very strict when handling taxpayer information. Virginia Gibson, NTD News.
the aftermath of COVID-19 vaccines in the spotlight today on Capitol Hill. Lawmakers grilling government officials to admit just how effective or not the vaccines are. And why are those who report vaccine injuries largely ignored by the FDA and the CDC? NTD's Melina Weisskup reports. Officials from the CDC and FDA came to Capitol Hill with a message. I want to stress that the COVID vaccine is safe uh, and it is effective. A claim that didn't slide by lawmakers unquestioned. Can you still get COVID after getting the COVID-19 vaccine? Y yes. 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 Okay. That's correct. Does it prevent you from transmitting it? The data on that are very challenging to um, uh, to pin down, but it does not absolutely prevent transmissions. Why does the CDC website then list it as a vaccine preventable disease and why does it call it a recommended immunization? A hearing designed to assess the government's vaccine safety systems at times showcased back and forth about whether or not American skepticism about the COVID vaccine is warranted. The National Institute of Health uh, also saw Ms. Dressen uh, for her neurological complications that have been quite severe. They studied her and then they dropped the study and asked her to be quiet about it. It's really unfortunate that we're actually here having this hearing trying to poke holes and uh, cause more vaccine hesitancy amongst the public. If in a small number of cases there are adverse results, w would you agree that that's a general conflict or dynamic that exists with all vaccines? Uh, correct. I think, uh, you know, we recognize that no inter medical intervention is, is risk-free. And with that said, some questioned why the government mandated the shot. And some doctors contradict you and you censor them. Even when you're not a doctor treating patients, people are going to say, why does the government have authority to do that? The hearing also brought to light that the government has largely ignored Americans who have filed claims of COVID-19 vaccine-related injuries. Of the 12,000 people who have filed such claims, just 11 have been compensated by the government. Reporting from Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskup, NTD News. Victims of Jeffrey Epstein now suing the FBI. They allege the agency helped cover up over two decades of sex trafficking operations. Entity's Stephanie Sakal has the story. A dozen victims of Jeffrey Epstein filed a lawsuit on February 14, accusing the FBI of hiding its failure to investigate the late financer, allowing his sex trafficking to continue for over 20 years. The victims, using pseudonyms like Jane Doe, claimed the FBI had information about Epstein's actions since 1996 but didn't act. Though the FBI started an investigation in 2006, it was halted after Epstein's guilty plea in 2008. The victims argued that the FBI negligence allowed their abuse to continue. The lawsuit seeks damages from the U.S. government. The U.S. Department of Justice did not immediately respond to a request for comment. The total number of victims is believed to be over 100. Victims have reached settlements in previous legal battles, but whether they have received compensation in those settlements is uncertain. Stephanie Sikal, NDD News. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Good night.